This is Paul. This is Sheila. And this is Inez. And we're here to talk about the eighth episode, the penultimate episode of CBS All Access's The Stand. This one has another perplexing name. We were just commenting last week on the episodic names of this podcast and how they get more and more simple as we go. This one was also called The Stand. <laughs> Confused me for a second. I'm like looking for the title. I'm like, wait, it's The Stand. I felt like yeah. this was like a who's on first. <laughs> it, it was a little bit like that, but this was The Stand. This episode depicted the big stand against Randall and the forces of, I don't know that they're evil as much as they're, they're just wildly selfish. <laughs> yeah. Easily manipulated. <laughs> the easily manipulated forces of selfishness. That's going to be my next album title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking that was a very diplomatic way to put it. Sure. <laughs> that's that's my skill. This one was directed again by Vincenzo Natali, the same guy that did the last one, who's well known for movies like Splice and Cube. We talked about some of his other credits last week. This one's writing credits were Taylor Elmore and Benjamin Cavill or Cavell, I'm not sure what his pronunciation is. I think is it there. was Cavell. I Cavell. think when Chris Fisher, when we we talked to him, he said, I think it was Cavell. He's one of the uh, executive producers and co-creators of the show. So let's look up Taylor Elmore real quick. Ah, yes. Okay. So he comes from Justified. Oh, and nice. Yeah. And Blood and Treasure and Limitless. Are you a blood and treasure person, uh, Sheila? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm a history nerd, so of course I am. <laughs> and then Justified is just, that's just good TV there. Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to check it out. You, you never heard of that one, Inez? No, I'm green. That one is... Timothy Oliphant, right? Timothy Oliphant is a U.S. Marshal in Kentucky. Like he goes home to Kentucky. And he is a uh, kind of an Old West style marshal. And even though he gets in trouble for it, he shoots someone pretty much every episode. <laughs> it was and, justified. Right. That's the that's the title. Justified is that, that, you know, he had his reasons and they were all legal every single time. Carolyn and I just binged that one. And that was a lot of fun. I think that's on Hulu. Yes. I think so, yeah. Because it was an effects show. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I didn't catch it when it was on live. I, I binged it on Hulu. I think that was a like a pre-Christmas kind of like, ah, this is quick. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, 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 love I wrapped the, a lot of presents to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love Timothy Oliphant. Uh, and uh, oh, as you're describing um, him in Justified, it kind of made me think about like his role in Deadwood, which I loved his role in Deadwood. Well, yeah. His his guy in Justified is, has a little better sense of humor <laughs> than his Deadwood guy, but but when it comes to gunplay, he's he's very similar guy. He's yeah. he's all business. Okay, but we're not here to talk about that. We are not. <laughs> we are here to talk about the big eighth episode of The Stand. Pretty much two storylines in this one. Let's let's talk about Stu and everything that happens with Stu right up front here. Sure. Just get him right out of the way. Basically. He's still hurt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Same spot we left him. Yeah. Basically, yeah. yeah. He's not doing well, though. Got that fever going. He's just, he's sick. Do you suppose that it is the presence of, of Kojak that prevented him from purposely ODing on the pain pills? I think so. Kojak was whimpering his sweet little face his way. And uh, I absolutely think that that was like Kojak was some kind of symbolism for for somebody who can really connect with Stu at this point. I felt like Stu was not really contemplating that suicide as an option when Glenn proposed it. He kind of had like a confused look on his face like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, when there's like, you know what I'm talking about, cowboy <laughs> or East <laughs> Texas or whatever. And and he kind of had to look like, oh, I really didn't think that I was going to go that route. But sure, I'll take the pills for that reason and then i guess it took him by surprise that maybe it was now incepted and he was in that low place and not thinking of survival and i think that kojak's presence is representative of his new community that is depending on him 
Kojak was there to help get him through. He was just being man's best friend. He's a good dog. He is a good dog. So if, if Kojak is there to symbolize his reason to keep living, then when the wolf appears, is that just, uh, like we've been saying, the wolf and various animals are a manifestation of flag. But this one gets his ass kicked <laughs> by, by a, what kind of dog is Kojak, would you think? He's like a setter, right? Like an Irish setter? Something like that. He's got yeah. kind of long, uh, luxurious hair. Yeah. <laughs> Not woolly, like I have a golden doodle. She's very woolly. <laughs> He's a good boy. He, he is. is. All right. So we did not get the big scene that we were hoping for in relation to Tom Cullen. I'm still hoping. I, I mean, they've only got one episode to go, so they can't waste a lot of time. But, man, I was really hoping to see how the big guy got himself out of that jam. Um, were you at all disappointed not to see that? Or do you think it still might be coming? Or where are you guys at? I think we might get a little bit of that when we when we enter episode nine, only because the final seconds of the, this episode were Tom seeing Kojak. So there's going to be, I feel like, a little bit of catch up between like Stu and Tom. Like, I feel like Tom's going to be like, how'd you get your leg broke? My laws. <laughs> M-O-O-N, that spells... M-O, that spells broken leg. Spells compound fracture. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, so I just think that there's going to be some sort of, like, you know, cozy catch-up over, uh, over some pain pills. You know, this was the stand, and there was one purpose for this episode, and uh, I think that I, I, my feeling is they probably didn't want to dilute it with uh, another equally heart-wrenching kind of experience, uh, right? Because Tom is so dear to all of our hearts and they know that we want to see him back ASAP. But uh, this is a pretty significant episode and very climactic, so I can understand why they would hold it off. And I really do hope that they show us how he did that whole transition from the truck to uh, being you know, safe on his feet on his way to Kojak. You're a little younger than Sheila and I, Inez. Do you, do you know who Kojak is? No. All right. Here's your here's your history lesson in pop culture. I know it's Kojak was a TV show in the 70s that even is too much too old for Sheila and I. It's, it would have been like reruns when we were yeah. very small at best. Um, it wasn't really one of those shows that just ran forever. So it's, it's it's funny that they kept the name for Glenn's dog because Glenn being his age right now, he would still have been single digit type age when Kojak was on TV. It was, it's a, it was a detective show, like a police show, you know, like the white guy with the badge and the gun shows up and solves all your problems kind of show. <laughs> except, yeah. he, except he was Telly Savalas, so he's like this big, bald guy and he kept, and he sucked on lollipops. Lollipops that, all day. Who that, loves you, baby? That was, that was his thing. <laughs> yeah, that was his catchphrase. Yeah. Well, we'll have to check it out. Odd pop culture fact about Telly Savalas, godfather to Jennifer Aniston. Is that true? Yeah, it is. I guess he got around. <laughs> I guess so. So anyway, yeah, that's a funny anachronism. Not It's a near anachronism, I guess, because people still know the name Kojak, but it made more sense when the book was written than the TV show 40 years later. Like, you have to be of a certain age at this point to know yeah. <laughs> to know what that is. Yeah. But our Stu, he, he and Tom are going to hook up, and I guess this is where we're going to start to see, I guess, the big changes. I always assumed that the Stephen King rewrite had to do with the Tom and and uh, Stu time that's upcoming. If you haven't read the book, then I'm not going to... I mean, obviously, you've seen this show, this episode, so you know that that's coming. But I don't want to say more than that, because whatever I think I know, I hope is different, <laughs> given, given that Stephen King rewrote the end. We can talk about the differences between what happened in New Vegas versus what happened in the book when we get to, to that part, because that part is a little different also. But for some reason, I think that's more a result of the television adaptation and less a part of Stephen King. I, I would hope I would hope to get that information at some point, though. Yeah, I feel like there were some changes that were made to make this a little more showy. I'm not mad at any of the changes. Like, so far, I've been... I've been okay with just about everything that they've adapted for for this series. When we get to New Vegas, like there's some d obviously definite things that make for much better television. But I'm excited to see where this this ends up. Like the fact that Stephen King had the a direct hand, the hand of God, right, <laughs> in this last uh, one. Uh, I see what I did there. Yeah. Um, it makes it just more enticing because this is a 40 plus year old story, and it's had several updates along the way. So just to get another 
appendix on it. I mean, they're calling it a coda, but, you know, another another reinterpretation of it I'm excited for. So, Well, then let's go to New Vegas, uh, where some of the big changes are. We, we know from talking to Chris Fisher, the director of Five and Six, that they had to create New Vegas themselves um, and use what they could find in BC, in British Columbia, to, to make that happen in Vancouver. It's funny, when you, when you know that, and you know they're not, you know, they're shooting the exi- the outside, the exterior in Vegas, but they're shooting the interior in Vancouver. And, and you look at it with that lens, it looks like they've just fucked up an embassy suites, right? Because <laughs> it's got like the little balconies and it's got like the, the pool underneath and it's got the <laughs> it's got the elevator with the glass walls and everything. It, it looks like an embassy suites to me, doesn't it? Or like a Hyatt, like I stated a Hyatt and like that's, all, well, without the pool at the bottom, but definitely the, the glass elevators, the balconies. The kangaroo court scene featured a couple of things I want to talk about. Did you notice the flags or the banners hanging on the walls? I didn't notice the banners. I noticed that they had crossed out the jumpsuits from LVDOC to RF. I noticed that too, but if you watch it again... Look on the walls. There are these red banners that appear to have, I think it's kind of up for interpretation what it is on there. If you turn it, if you were to turn them horizontally because they're vertically oriented banners, it would look sort of like a sketch of an eye, kind of like if you use maybe graphite or something or charcoal or something to, to do it. But vertically oriented, it looks sort of like a spider. Either way, um, I could make some King-esque associations with that. There's a, a recurring bad guy character in some of Stephen King's work called the Crimson King, who is not Satan. He is just the Crimson King. And he has an eye, sort of like an eye of Sauron sort of thing that figures into his mythos. So the idea that this red eye should show up in Randall Flagg's influence when Randall Flagg has served as his minion in other books kind of makes sense. But if it's also a spider, that also makes sense in that the imagery of the spider is something that appears in Stephen King's work because he's kind of freaked out by spiders. He's always been scared of spiders. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, it was like That's what freaks him out? Well, <laughs> yeah, well, it was just one of those associations from, from when he was a kid. Something happened with spiders and and like like it uh, is is one of his one of its forms is a spidery form, you know. You, yeah, that's right. And, and spiders keep coming up as just like the ultimate creepy crawly personification of evil in his <laughs> in his books. I would like to wager that crickets are far more disgusting than spiders. Mm, yeah, they're, they're, well, they, they seem to be a lower class creepy crawly because they'll go anywhere, you know. But they also <laughs> jump, fuckers. Well, and they make a lot of sound. I got bad news for you, uh, Sheila. You should come to Texas and see the gymnastics that some of our spiders can do down here. I lived in Australia for two years, so I've had my fill oh, of spiders okay. that do freaking gymnastics. All right. Then I guess you got me beat. Uh, yeah. I lived there for two years, but for 10 years, I still flipped up every toilet seat that I ever used because just force a habit because the one time that one of those little creepy crawly fuckers comes out from underneath your toilet seat is enough to remind you that you need to do that every single time oh my god Sheila I did not need this level of paranoia in my everyday life (laughs) you might have just made an impact (laughs) Australia is a beautiful country I love it the people there I have dear friends who live there I nothing against the country but you can go to hell with your spiders (laughs) oh I, I second the motion. If you guys didn't notice the banners, then let's talk about Glenn and his performance in the kangaroo court. Do you think Glenn was angling to not make it out of there? Do you think like he basically, I don't know, martyred himself or did, or, or how do you see Glenn's performance in that, in that scene? I don't think that Glenn was being an intentional martyr. I think that he is, very intelligent and he was reading things and seeing things before the rest of us or you know he was the one who was kind of unfolding things for the audience right like we're all terrified of the people hanging down the roadway and he's thinking this is opportunity this means that he's actually a lot weaker and so i think that he felt 
that content with that much knowledge, but I not a hundred percent sure that he really thought that he would die until it was like happening. And then after that, it was just about like finding that piece to kind of see it through the end. I thought it was interesting when he quoted the play Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, when he talks about, it's not the fault in our stars, but ourselves, we the underlings. I took a lot of English classes. You know, we spent a lot of time <laughs> on Shakespeare. You know, you have to dive into that line because that didn't appear in the book. So uh. that's talking about, it's not necessarily fate that was what drives men to make their decisions and their actions, but it's rather the human condition. So it's, it's almost like he's pointing out that Lloyd and the people in the kangaroo court basically can't help themselves just because they're feeling weak at this moment. And this is how Flag is keeping them under his boot, really, by this show of force. And so Glenn is pointing out the fact that it is their choice to be this way or to be a different way. And he's got a lot of things pegged. So I'm not sure if he's angling necessarily to be a martyr, but it would strengthen the narrative if he's trying to say that they have free will and they have choice by picking that quote from Shakespeare. Seems to have flown over Lloyd's head at first, but then it sat with him a while and, and he couldn't get over it. Too bad he had to put about 17 bullets into Glenn on his way to figuring it out. I mean, martyr's a strong word because I also think Glenn would have preferred to have lived through that. <laughs> he didn't go, <laughs> go into it wanting to get killed, but he did see, like you guys mentioned, that there was a crack in the, in the armor and this was it, was their fear. They, they, they were living that way based on fear of flag rather than some strong belief or, or, or kinship or something like that. I did like the, uh, <laughs> his unique, uh, sarcasm with the, um, mother of dragons and king of the andals and <laughs> I laughed out loud and like completely inappropriately. That was, that was great. Yeah, it was wonderful, you know, because he's already kind of been deciphering things like he sees things about them that they don't see about themselves because he is super smart and he is like a scholar background, right? Is, a professor. Is, right. So it makes sense that in this moment, like when he when you realize here's somebody who doesn't realize their potential, it's kind of like a instinct to want to help them realize that. And I think once he kind of saw that knowledge gap between their free will, that they actually do have free will, it became his mission to be a scholar in that moment. But yeah, I, I think he would definitely have rather stayed alive. I've read some comments about people not jiving with this characterization of Lloyd. I don't know if they preferred the, the, the one in the other miniseries or, or not, or if they just saw Lloyd in some other way. But I'm okay with this one. And the reason why is the read that we got on him initially back when he held up the convenience store with a poke and the, and the pokerizing scene, how we read him as willing to go along with things up to a certain point, but wasn't really cool with the violence that the other guy was. Yeah, he doesn't have like the heart of a killer. Not really. He's, he has the heart of being able to go along with killers. But... Like I'm a miscreant, but <laughs> right. you know, I'm not full asshole. I'm only part asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so the groundwork was there. They just didn't give us a lot of Lloyd throughout the whole season. But I think I think you could argue that it was always there. Yeah, he's always been just terrified just of, of Randall and never really thinking for himself. He's just following orders. Which is what I think Glenn was really smart to point out by using this this quote from Shakespeare, is that you don't necessarily have to just do what you're told, that you can be your own man, essentially. I really like this portrayal of Lloyd. I like how he just like, I'm here to ride the coattails of somebody else to do the hard work. But once it came down to him, uh, you know, I still don't want to give him credit as like being any kind of hero in this scene. But I do. I, I think that he is not as hard as everybody wants him to be and as hard as he thinks that he needs to be in order to stay alive. They showed us a lot of vulnerability. And I think that we don't see like a ton of these stress that the villains like little posses are normally under in most 
shows or movies is kind of like everybody's at the same level of loyalty until the very end, right? Like, you know, oh, you said one bad thing to me and I'm ditching you like in Lion King. And so I, what I appreciate is really having more in-depth insight into the everyday stresses that they were under. And they made him a little bit more likable, but I still think he's like a psycho. Right. The, uh, miscreant is, is a pretty good word. <laughs> <laughs> not a great guy, but not completely devoid of a conscience either. Tied up in the kitchen. Yeah. Larry and Ray. Ray, I'm impressed with in these scenes. She is scared out of her brains, but doesn't let the bad guys see it any more than she has to. That's respect there, man. That's uh, that's pretty mm. good stuff. Right, like yeah. she's just vulnerable enough in front of Larry. I, I just love that the, the, their need for human comfort and human contact in these moments when she's like, can you just scoot over when they were both um, handcuffed oh, to the stove? That. I was getting chills with that because it's just, we're 7 billion people. We're down to maybe a million across the globe, right? Yeah. And in this moment, this person that she's known a very short amount of time is the only person on the planet really that matters right now. They're the only two people that matter to each other. I just loved the honesty and the rawness of just putting your head on someone's shoulder and just be like, I know it's not going to be okay, but can we just have this moment? And even later on when they're in the pool together and they, they grasp hands, the second that they're handcuffed to the, to the bottom of the pool, they just grasp their hands and they're just not letting go. And that's just, it's such a, a moment of just friendship and just honesty. I just, I was really here for the, the Larry and Ray moments here today. That was some sweet, sweet stuff between those two. Again, with maybe a longer running show, you might have seen a little bit more of their any kind of relationship before that. You know, since Ray was rewritten from a, a male character and they were all heterosexuals that I recall <laughs> in the book, um, then you wouldn't have gotten this, this scene quite like this. Uh, we've been pointing out changes that we like and i think this is probably probably a good one i really really loved it i think early on in the show i thought that ray just kind of felt like a placeholder mm -hmm. um like we have ray because it's a character body count in the book and I didn't really, you know, she didn't really do much or say much other than just be around Mother Abigail. Um, and so now seeing in these most recent episodes more focus on on her, I did tear up seeing her like ask Larry um, at that point to scooch next to her. Oh, my God, such a good was such a beautifully written scene and uh and it really reminded me you know I, about three years ago i moved out here to california and my husband and my daughter stayed back in texas while i got things settled while i was over here i spent the first three months by myself like so no friends no family just work and i like my body was like aching just to hug somebody. It was such a huge, crazy craving that I had to hug someone. And, uh, you know, my friend Lawrence here, you know, I work with him and we were in a one-on-one and I was kind of like, just telling him, like, I just feel so weird. Like I haven't hugged anybody in so long. And he's like, do you need a hug? And I'm like, yes. And, so, and I <laughs> gave him a really big hug and oh my gosh, it like got, took away so much tension. It got rid of so much anxiety. And then you bring that same kind of presence into this scene. Oh my God. Like I felt it to my soul. I, I was there for it. I mean, she brought it. I, I'm, I'm familiar with the actor. So I, I knew that he was, he was solid, but she, she held up her end of the deal. <laughs> she was Pocahontas back in the Disney production. Really? Yeah. Look at me with all the little pop culture trivia for you tonight. Nice. We're all learning. Kojaks, Cujos, Pocahontas. Who loves you, baby? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a that's a great callback. <laughs> that's why you keep me around. <laughs> right, the entertaining callbacks and trivia. I did like about Ray though. One thing, just one final thought came to yes. when Inez was talking was that she's been a spitfire every other scene that we've seen her in. She's been very I, is militant. The right word. She's been very regimented in her protection of Mother assertive. Abigail. Yeah. Okay. Assertive. I think that's a better word for it. Very assertive and not a lot of 
softness, not a lot of just like, I'm not going to say femininity really, but there's just not been a lot of opening from her. Like she's not really opened herself up the way that the council we've seen has opened up to each other. So the fact that we got such a human response from her this episode, it just, it was a really beautifully written scene to to echo what Inez said. It's just, and just to see her journey and where she's, where she's gotten to with being comfortable with Larry, I was just really just in awe of, of how she played this character. How would you like to come to the delivery room and, and see the, um, the the MC of the Fight Club there to, to deliver your baby? And five <laughs> minutes ago was the Maleficent judge. Right. Headdress-wearing, crow-feathery judge in the kangaroo court. <laughs> With the, what was it, the justice... The justice tattoo balance balance it on her face. <laughs> and now you're delivering the the dark princess baby. Yeah. That was a crazy She's just scene. a jack of all trades, you know? We always uh, joke, Caroline and I, whenever we go to a small establishment that has one person filling the same role over and over again, because it reminds us of old an old Scooby-Doo cartoon with Don Knotts, where Don Knotts did the same thing. So we call that person Don Knotts. So she's a Don Knotts in my book, is someone that fills the same role. They just wear like a mustache and one, and like the ticket booth, but then they go to the roller coaster and they take it off and they wear like a different suit. <laughs> I got you. I'm of an age. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this whole bit, the whole bit where she goes from completely on board to I'm going to jump out the window. How did we get there? Did did Larry's words sink in? Was it just the fact that this thing was tearing her apart from the inside out that convinced her? What do you guys think? Oh, man. You know, I I remember from the book, you know, she was very well aware that she was being raped, you know, when he exposed himself of who he was. And I know that they did the scene as best as they could to kind of imply when it became not okay. And to me, it's still pretty fucking traumatic uh, of how it went down in the last episode. And I know in the book, it's about her kind of being in this like state of catatonia. I don't know if this gave us that any kind of indication that, uh, that that was the state that she was in because it did kind of come off that she was like here for it. But I felt like in the book, it was more clear. She was not on board about this or like definitely struggling so maybe the story from the show's version is that she was fine with it up until this moment that she realized like oh my god this is gonna kill me and that's fucked up (laughs) are we to believe that the shock of seeing herself in the reflection is what might have started the contractions or we just think it was just you know she's been pregnant for 20 minutes so (laughs) so it's time to time to go well i think larry did to nadine what glenn did to lloyd so glenn nice so glenn made lloyd grow a conscience larry made nadine come back to reality she's in like this trance like yeah like this catatonic state when she's around randall and and he broke that and i love when ray was just like pitch you look bad (laughs) (laughs) that was the best quote of the show that that was the crack in the armor right and then he and then larry basically you know did a, a julius caesar on her with this line saying you know you he he saw her for what she was and i didn't like that she was letting harold take the fall for the vigil that that Larry was giving all the credit to Harold and she was not necessarily sharing her role in it other than making herself look better that uh, she got the kids and kept Larry away from the vigil. Yeah, he, I think he forces her to see herself for what she truly is without Randall around to reinstate the catatonic state for her. She gets to see how hideous she becomes. I feel the contractions are a result of her sort of like being shocked back to reality. I like bringing up the point that, like, why did she have to lie to Larry about it? Like, it's done. She's with her prince. Like, who fucking cares, like, what the truth is, right? So might as well be truthful about it. And the fact that she's even in this state that we find her in where the bitch looks bad, (laughs) like, (laughs) she still feels like she needs to save face for Larry just shows how connected emotionally she still is to him I'm telling you and as you called it if he just given her the d none of this would have happened <laughs> come on people Let, let's take the shame out, out of sex okay it could save literally the world yes exactly <laughs> 
<laughs> or what's left of it. This episode brought to you by Viagra. I wish I could remember more clearly if the magic jelly bean figures into the, the novel or not. If it does, it didn't seem like a big deal. It does not. So basically, Flag just loses control, yanks Nadine and, and tosses her out the window. Then he, like, as he's doing it, he remembers, oh shit, she's carrying my child. And he tries to hold on to the dress, the billowing white dress, and it rips and she falls. So he was just in a fit of rage. So I like this so much better that she just did this to fuck him. Just basically showing the further loss of control that he's experiencing over New Vegas. And I like this better than Flag doing this to her directly, that this was Nadine's choice. And she was just like, screw you, pal. And out the window she goes. If I had to choose between the two, even though I like both endings of Nadine, I I think I would have liked to seen him go ahead and lose control and composure um, and toss over. I think it would have been very even, even clearer picture into how fragile his state of being actually is um, probably make it even just more clear that he's not a god like he has made everybody believe that he is and I think like showing that kind of vulnerability he just threw his queen the person that you would think is the most protected person of the entire community in New Vegas and and throwing her out the window because he lost a sense of control would have been a really terrifying thing to witness if you are supposed to be Team Randall because he says you're supposed to. When Glenn died, poor Glenn, you know, but it ended up sending Flag into like a no-fly zone. Like everybody saw his ruthlessness um, or, you know, hit the impact of of the fear he has on Lloyd and for him to do that. They were all just kind of left shock. And and that's what kind of is inspires that that's like the first catalyst of what ended up transpiring, you know, later on into the, the stand scene. I can I can go both ways. I think this, this new version, you get the benefit of a slight redemption of the Nadine character, which wasn't there originally, which is, oh, you know, it's nice. It's not necessary. It doesn't happen all the time. And it's not like it redeems her for everything, but at least she dies having seen the light a little bit. Well, in the book, she does. She did that on purpose. Like she, it talks about her smiling yes. um, on her way Goating down. Him. Yeah, oh, like okay. because she, this, her intention was for him to lose control and kill her because I guess she couldn't do it himself. Maybe the this cinematic way was just the way to make that very obvious that it was her who controlled that environment because technically that's what she did in the book too. She controlled it, but he was the one that did it instead of her doing it to herself mm-hmm. and when she used the magic jelly bean to break the glass yeah. which which makes was... sense i mean how else are you gonna explain her little like <laughs> fragile hand <laughs> going through the penthouse window right be very skeptical of those vancouver interior uh casino <laughs> windows i guess otherwise i mean damn it's vancouver like you know that that's gonna be like triple pane glass to keep out that cold right when he's observing the whole scene and he just says, cancel the nursery. <laughs> oh my God. I know. It's so fucked up. They spared nothing on her way down in terms of the sound, in terms of the the, the length of time it felt, you know, it took for her to fall. I can't even speak. I was like so disturbed by the sound. Well, they didn't even have the usual TV cutaway. No, no, there was no cutaway. It was like you saw her land and thud and squelch. You know, for TV, you got that one second before splat where you see the reaction of everyone. Going, right, you Ooh. see like whoever saw her fall, like <laughs> right. it cuts away to them at that moment. But nope, they they did not spare us. Yes. I mean, it's it's all the better for it because it's just showing how far and how fast New Vegas is crumbling. And if you're paying attention, y- you can see it crumbling. Well, yeah, and like you mentioned, the no fly zone. It's similar to it, right? Like it in the terms of like the kids needed to believe, at least in the movie version, uh, that it was big and bad and there to kill them, and that's what kind of powered it. When their belief uh, wavered, it, so did its power, and then that same kind of thing with with Randall here. And by her jumping out the window and showing everybody he could be defied publicly, he needed to get his his power back, I guess. Uh, and, and so... Get the mojo back. Right. So then what what better way to do that than a public drowning of, of your and enemies? dance party. Yes. Is there any cool way for 
a villain to dance. Uh, I think we just saw it. You think that was it? I think that was it. <laughs> this looks so dorky. No matter, <laughs> no matter how hot you know Alex Skarsgård is, and I would probably be on his team anyway, like just because to look at him. But that was some goofy ass dancing. <laughs> it's been a yeah, minute. I don't, I don't know how you make that. You know that look cool. You know. I don't know either. Next time, but I am I'm... definitely going to be gifting that that dance scene <laughs> for sure. Send it to me, <laughs> absolutely. Because once it doesn't have like our screeners watermark across the, <laughs> I'm definitely going to gif it. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> From here, a lot of this plays out close to what we got in the book. You know, in terms of like trashy showing up where he's not supposed to and stuff going down. Did anyone else get Raiders of the Lost Ark vibes from the way things went down? No, explain. I mean, now that you're saying it, I'm like, huh, but explain. Well, you know, at the very end, when when they're tied up and the Nazis open up the Ark and and he says, keep your eyes shut. Basically, everyone else is killed around them hor- horrifically by the uh-huh. powers invested in the in the Ark. Uh-huh. Mm. Absolutely, 100%. Continue, but I'm, <laughs> I'm on board with this. It reminded me of that. Just the way that they were killed, how, how it was meant to hurt. It wasn't like, like a, a euthanizing sort of thing. It was like something zapping through you. Like these people were partially disintegrated in, in most cases. They weren't even like completely done away with. Just sort of like three quarters of your chest was was zapped off. As soon as you started like talking about the intentional pain of it and things like that and, you know, the closure. So like Ray and Larry were spared Yes. Even though, like, all of this electricity floating around, I'm like, they're in a pool, goddammit! <laughs> yeah. Hey, thanks, God. <laughs> exactly. Water conducts electricity here, folks. But they were spared all of that. They had their own horrific thing to deal with. But no, I, I 100% see that. It had this very, like, the supernatural, like, and the way that the the the, cl- the cloud came around the casino, it looked like a hand. It did look like fingers to me. In a much less literal way than the miniseries did yeah um no i appreciated the artistic flair that this was given and i did pause it like several times on julie julie got blown up <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> like, that was so satisfying and uh rat woman was basically exploded like from her torso um so her head kind of like rolled off in one direction so i think, um, I think julie's face got fried like it yeah. was like a direct impact on her face that was so satisfying and her arm like <laughs> fell off i was like this is amazing i highly recommend that you go back and you like just watch those couple of scenes just on like slow-mo just to see how well it's done she did like the george costanza out of my way move (laughs) (laughs) just before that though out of my way that's because i wanted to make sure that you celebrated when she got her face fried off her hair got singed everything it was just amazing there's like little pink tendrils falling very graphic but i love it in the book this is all described with the the hand of god language which in 94 mick garris translated into a very literal animated hand like reaching up and kind of like slapping away the (laughs) the the danger right it was it was like it kind of visualized it like you know like those hands that you get at like like kid carnivals Totally. You know this trend of like the tiny hand trend that you see everybody doing the little hand like, you know, making stuff or whatever. Like Paul, I'm getting tiny hand vibes from this conversation now. Yeah. Well, you're not you're not far off for for how. I mean, when you get to that when you've invested all those hours in that in that original miniseries and then you get to that scene, you, you, it doesn't It doesn't leave you warm and fuzzy. It's not great. You're okay with how trashy takes the place down at that point. By the sounds of it, you guys are cool with with this kind of updating, kind of de-specifying this hand of God stuff and, and making it a little more abstract. Obviously, something purposeful was behind that ball lightning or whatever it was floating around in the middle of the building there <laughs> very specifically it was like the little um when luke skywalker is trying to learn how to use the lightsaber that little ball that's there and it's like <laughs> yeah. like that's what i was like that's what i'm the vibe that i was getting off of that nice but no i liked how that was because then it was like it was basically the inversion of the randall eye right the evil eye okay 
So it's basically like pinpointing where am I going to go next? Zap, there's Julie. Zap, there's Ratwoman. Zap, let me get the ring so I can decapitate Lloyd. Lloyd needed another couple of seconds because he was going to let Larry and Ray go. But, you know, in in light of what was going to happen there. I'm sorry. I got a case of the giggles. It didn't matter. (laughs) That's okay. We're talking about decapitations here on Clubhouse. (laughs) Maybe I'm not remembering it well, but I know that he said for a second, like, get the keys to get him out. But then, like, once he couldn't figure it out, he was just like, bye. (laughs) You know? So it's like, okay. Well, I think he was telling the guards because I don't think he had the keys on him, but but he was telling, like, the guys who were, like, kind of guarding the pool with the Uzis or whatever they were to get the keys and he was just like, let them go. But not super helpful with, like no oversight of actual follow through because at that point people are like okay i'm glad that you said that but like fucking randall's right there looking at me right like (laughs) and he's screaming for people to be torn apart for agreeing that they will fear no evil what can we like just take a moment to talk about like larry and ray's scene here in the water because i'm i've got some feelings and thoughts around it please I'm not spoiling anything from the book, okay? Very clearly, they perish in this explosion um, in the book. The the scene gave me, like, vibes. I got more vibes about it, everything's going to be okay and then unspoken because we're going to live through it versus uh, we're going to be okay and, like, you know, I'm here for you as we, like, perish together and the reason that i'm like having these conflicting thoughts about it is because of you know this hand of god is very intentionally zapping everybody all around them and and purposely not hurting them while they're in the pool and that just seems almost a mixture of cruel (laughs) and also like I, i can also see a kindness and not like having this very painful death of being electrocuted you know by proxy it's also like okay but i've got the water like coming up to me and submerging and i'm watching myself like slowly die what are your kind of thoughts about how they um framed this this scene it's a weird ending i mean it's as as someone who's read some stephen king sheila you're probably aware that he's criticized for not effectively ending many of his stories Right. He gets flack for kind of like missing the target on the or missing the home run. He he builds these great characters and he creates these conversations. And he then he also creates these scenes where fucked up things happen that you can't get out of your head. But then when he tries to wrap it up at the end, often it leaves you like, mm, uh, <laughs> I, wish, yeah. I wish something else had happened. What you're feeling might be just tied to to some of that it is just that you have what could be the heroes win the day sort of thing but then you also have well but then why'd you why'd you have trashy even exist in this story if you were gonna do that it's almost like they needed a clean way to wipe randall from the board although personally i think randall's probably not killable he's probably more like resettable you know like Mm -hmm. like you may get him now but give him 800 years and he'll be back (laughs) or or something you know he's just foreshadowing paul yeah the stand part two sit (laughs) (laughs) you're really not helping my case with the giggle like i think i have it in bay and then you say sit Honestly, when the bomb went off and Larry and Ray were under the water, I was like, oh, well, I guess I guess that's the same end for them. And I think that's why it doesn't sit well is because we're used to the heroes not dying. So I think that's an interesting, you know, sort of way to end them because, I mean, obviously there's no way for them to get away from a nuclear blast unless like the water is somehow, you know, irradiated and and lead-lined not that close yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) like there's no hand of god that's coming down to like scoop them up kind of thing there's that feeling that like you have this this massive force between good and evil happening and playing out and we're like we're just not used to the hero's journey ending with them being blown up also the fact that like we don't see randall actually die is also, you know, disconcerting, but, you know, obviously stay tuned for the podcast <laughs> sequel as well. We might be like deserted island sit. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Joe confirmed it to them back in Boulder uh, with him saying the dark man is gone. Yeah, but not um, dead. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. So he just says he's gone. And Freddy's like, wait, wait, what? But yeah, I think it's just disconcerting that, you know, the heroes don't live. They are resigned to the same fate that these miscreants, I'll use that word again, that these miscreants who've made their choices and have chosen to live in this debaucherous state, they all meet the same fate. And that's not usually the storytelling that we're used to. I was just sad to see that it, it played out the same way for them because Larry and Ray deserve deserve better than that. Well, Larry had had his whole arc in storytelling terms. That's what makes you kind of ripe to become expendable. The Ralph slash Ray character wasn't nearly as fleshed out. She, she just was in the wrong place at the wrong time while Larry was having <laughs> the completion of his character arc occur. Right. Well, I mean, they, they buttoned her up quickly and neatly to also be a resolved character. So that's a dangerous thing to be in a in a story where there's still episodes left. No one just gets to skate along and be like, I'm complete without something dangerous happening to them. I was heartbroken when it happened in the book. And of course, heartbroken when I'm watching it happen again. And it's just a sneaky little feeling like, well, I know they're changing the ending. So, you know, like is this part of the changes. I don't to know. To be honest, Inez, this is one of the reasons that I continue to read Stephen King, though, is that he'll get a hero or a protagonist about 75% of the way through a story and then kill them. It'll be so unexpected uh, because he doesn't write on formula. That's why I keep reading him. So true. I, I love his work for this exact same reason. I'm always shocked. At, but, uh, but yeah, but I really loved Larry's character and his development. And I really loved uh, Ray's character, how they built her up. And this is what probably my favorite episode of Ray's this season. It was really beautiful. I loved that there was a lot of focus on the tranquility of death with Glenn and Larry and Ray versus the chaos and fear of everybody else around them. I think that added a lot to the satisfaction of this story too, was just knowing that they're okay. <laughs> like as much as I wish that they would just miraculously survive in their little like superpower pool water. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Yeah, that was vaporized. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I was like, ho-hum, okay. <laughs> you know, it, it just made me also wonder, just kind of going now to like Trash Can Man and, and, and Randall Flagg, I just kind of getting a gauge as to like, you know, Randall's supposed to, you know, he's a very, very old being. It just kind of was interesting to me that like somebody who's been around the block for a really long time would not realize that you can't trust a schizophrenic pyromaniac to survive radiation, like melting his brain and then to like drive this all the way up to Boulder. This is something about like, really, you're just going to send this guy who's like pretty much naked <laughs> and you know i've seen the show 24 and i and that's this is where i learned about like close-up radiation <laughs> uh, 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 impact of how it like immediately like fucks up your skin like melting your skin and it's just kind of like really random like you just set him up like that huh just by this naked guy setting him off with this with this uh, radiation thing that's just literally melting his brain so you know you you earned this one buddy you know, having been written so long ago, there's no possible way that King could have fo foreseen a possible equivalent. I, I don't want to go into the politics of it, but if I say the words, only the best people, do, do you make any immediate connections to any, say, recent cabinets that might have been installed, you know, within the last, say, four years? Um <laughs> Are they the very best people you're talking about? Yeah, Paul? yeah, mm. only the best people, um, and that that seems to be who Lloyd went and, or not Lloyd, but who Randall went and got in Lloyd and <laughs> Julie and <laughs> Trash. <laughs> only the best people, uh, very best people. I think Stephen King would like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he got people with questionable consciences and questionable morals and questionable sanity. You reap what you sow. I think that's the very much the message of at least if not this episode then then this whole show that's one of the messages anyhow. Next week we move into what I assume to be this coda that we've been talking about this whole time. If you're out there in the world and don't know what a coda is 
<laughs> and we keep using this term. It's a musical term that has to do with the end of a piece. You know, how verses and choruses, they may be they may get repeated over and over again, but then the ending sounds a little bit different, but still kind of sounds the same. That that's the coda, the part that sounds different that ends the piece. So that's what's meant by coda. I don't know what to expect here, guys. I know how it ended in the last one. I know uh, who showed up. I know who talked. <laughs> I know who wound up where. I assume some of those same things are gonna happen, but I don't want to. I don't want to go too deep into the into the predictions um, for my own self. Do you guys have any expectations or things that you're hoping to see? I think we're all eager to see how our buddy Tom is going, how he's doing. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I I just want to see how Stephen King reimagines this for a 2019, 2020 rewriting. I I don't have many expectations. I know how the book ends and it's fine. (laughs) But um, it's a lot of pages to get to a a nice place. (laughs) Yeah. um, Right. There's a lot. There's a lot of walking. Again, no. I'm just excited for Stephen King to to put pen to paper and to have that pen to paper now become our last episode. Um, I've been I've been saying this all along. I'm still on board with how they've adapted this. I don't feel that anything has been so like egregious, and I've actually stopped reading the Facebook group until this is over. But I'm just excited to see what the the reimagining is from from Mr. King himself. So. Yeah, we should probably leave it just general like that, because having been book readers, this is where it's this is where I've been waiting for. This is the excitement that I had going into the season was not just to see, you know, kind of like old friends again in characters from a book that I like, but then the promise of those old friends doing something different than I remember them doing and knowing that it's coming as opposed to some wild change in an adaptation that you end up hating this i'm really excited to see because i know that it's coming (laughs) i've liked what's come before i like these same people playing these characters i have nothing but eager anticipation so with that we will meet up again one more time to finish up this podcast and give you episode nine this was episode eight of the stand the stand this is paul this is Sheila. And this is Inez. If you could head on over to where you get this podcast from, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, etc., to rate, review, and subscribe. So this way you get a notification whenever we drop a new episode. Also, if you could review and give us five stars, that would be greatly appreciated. And it is a fantastic way for other people to find this show and get as much enjoyment out of it as you do. Thanks so much. It says the speech or it gets the hose again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, Paul. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.